And good morning, evening, afternoon, wherever you are in the world. This is Harrison Smith with another episode of Cinema. And I'm about to embark on a limited uh, series on this before I hit episode 100. Uh, episode 100 is kind of a milestone. So I thought uh, I wanted to do this because, uh, again, Twitter and I've seen it now in the mainstream press of this call for uh, horror movies to get official Academy and, and Oscar recognition and to be accepted by the mainstream. And this limited series over the next couple episodes is going to look at, I guess, the really simple question, and that is, should it? Does horror need an Oscar? Does it need mainstream acceptance? Because I'm going to point out something that I have in, in some of my previous episodes, and that is during this pandemic, what was the genre that kept movie theaters alive and kept the business moving? It wasn't comedy. It wasn't even action. In fact, a lot of those got tabled, including the mighty James Bond. But it was horror. Movies like The Wretched and moving on from there. Host. Uh, all of these things, well, they seem to make plenty of money. And yet, horror is treated often like the ugly stepchild. So I want to look into this a little bit and and I'd love to hear your opinions on this because there is that old expression of you you better be careful for what you wish for because you just might get it. I don't know if this is what really should happen to the genre. Although I will state clearly at the start of this there are a number of individuals, actors and also filmmakers and special effects artists who have been royally shafted by the Academy. But let's get into this. I mean, horror in its own definition, well, it's an outsider. I mean, horror, when you watch these movies, it lives in the outlying regions. I mean, horror can find a home in the suburbs. It can find a home in the family and and the everyday kind of family. You know, you look at Poltergeist or something like that. But it also remains in the shadows. It stays outside of normalcy in everyday life. It is rare that you see a horror movie where horror just kind of announces itself, right? I mean, it stays hidden. It needs to be discovered. That's all part of the charm of horror. Horror doesn't just walk into a town and go, I'm here, and there's no hiding it. It takes on a different face. It will disguise itself. It will try to blend in. Horror is a disruptor. Its very nature is to transform the everyday, the common, into every nightmare. And with that being said, why do we love it so damn much? I mean, think about this. Go back to the Great Depression. The number one films at the box office were horror films. And it has been proven economically and statistically that during bad economic times, horror thrives at the box office. You would think that it would be comedies. And they, they did well too during the Depression and such. Don't get me wrong. But I've written a piece for Dread Central on the summer of 1979 at the box office and what was big at the time. And aside from you know some comedies here and there, These were bad economic times in the 70s. We were still in the Carter years. We were uh, in a period known as the malaise period or the crisis of confidence. And the economy was in the toilet. Gas prices were were doubled. Uh, Inflation was out of control. 
and unemployment was at its highest since since post-war. And yet, what was scoring at the box office? It wasn't dramas. It wasn't even action films. It was Alien, the Amityville Horror, John Frankenheimer's Prophecy, and then the following year, it was The Shining. And this goes on and on. Friday the 13th, horror does extremely well at the box office during bad economic times. There is no coincidence whatsoever that the slasher movies rose up during the 80s because although a lot of people historically like to think that Ronald Reagan came in and just fixed the economy with a a swipe of his hand, the economy did not really start to rebound uh, until like 1983. So you're looking right at going into the middle of the 80s and really Reagan's re-election period when things really noticeably started turning around. Unemployment numbers started to dip. Inflation was brought under control. But And even then, not 100%. We still had a, a considerable rise in homelessness and the rich were getting richer and the poor were getting poorer. And yet horror thrived during this time. Look, that's why so many of you go and I see the memes on Twitter. The best decade for horror was the 80s. And that's why so many of us, and you listening, we cling to what I call the pentagram of horror. And that is the franchises of Michael Myers, Halloween, Friday the 13th, Jason Voorhees, uh, Candyman with Tony Todd, Hellraiser with Pinhead, okay? And then you have arguably uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So you have those five franchises, which many people believe That's the definition of horror. And there you go, folks. We're going to get into this. That's also part of the problem why the Academy and the Oscar just ignores horror so much. But we'll come back to that in a later episode. Go back to the start of all of this and look at some of the original famous horror authors. You have Shelley and Poe and Stoker. And look at their times that they they lived in. You have to always couch horror and, and movies in general within their historical context. If you take these films out of their context, they don't mean a lot. And so I'm going to say something right here about Friday the 13th. The simple reason why the Friday the 13th series, the franchise, struggles at this point to reboot and recapture the imagination. And don't say, well, wait a minute, no, it still is popular. No, the old films are popular. But who are they popular with? It is certainly not Generation Z or even many of the millennials. No, Friday the 13th, the franchise, is popular with Gen X because we grew up with it. And the nostalgia factor is what keeps it going. The same with Halloween. Now look at the times, and I've done a podcast on this, especially with Friday the 13th. Look at the historical times in which Friday the 13th came to the fore. First of all, it was a ripoff of Halloween, and it was a deliberate ripoff of Halloween. Uh, Sean Cunningham will tell you that. They just wanted to rip off the success of Halloween, and they gave you a lot more boobs and blood. Friday the 13th's tried and true formula is have sex and die. And the focus is almost always around those randy, horny teenagers that come out to this camp, defile Jason's stomping grounds. They have sex and they pay the price. And why is this? 
because it all goes back to Pamela Voorhees. She blamed two counselors who were fucking around in a cabin instead of watching her son and he drowned. That started the killing at Camp Blood, Camp Crystal Lake, in the 1980 film. A lot of people forget that. It wasn't Jason doing the killing in 1980. It is his mother, Pamela Voorhees. And really, the film was not set to have a sequel of any kind, or let alone become a franchise. But success breeds success. And we are now up to how many of these, if you include Freddy vs. Jason and the reboots. The reboots have faltered. And even Freddy vs. Jason faltered. And if you think about it, Freddy vs. Jason's uh, central context is not about sex. We have a new generation now in the day and age after AIDS. This is the post-AIDS generation that have curtailed a lot of that. And technology has changed things where sex is no longer the number one priority. Now kids are more than happy to share sexy messages, sexting, if you will. Uh, But it's a lot of effort to go out and just have sex. I'm not saying people aren't reproducing and having sex. But what I'm saying is this whole motif of a bunch of horny teenagers go out to a camp for a weekend or a week or open it up and then get picked off one by one, usually after uh, sex, is kind of alien to a new generation that most of them don't even fucking drive. They, They hitch rides with friends. They grab an Uber. Some of them are 19, 20 years old and don't even have their driver's licenses. And many don't even leave their houses anymore. They sit online, let alone think about going out to some dirty, rundown cabin in the middle of the woods to spend either a weekend or an entire summer. That is alien to them. And the whole concept even of summer camp has become extremely alien. So when you start removing the historical context of things, the movies don't really have a place and they're looked upon as oddities. And therefore, these reboots and these remakes rely on actually the old generation that they're kind of trying to escape. They're trying to introduce themselves to a new generation. And yet, they're not catching that generation. And we're going to go to that as well, too. But going back to the authors of like Shelley, Poe, and Stoker, and they're not the only horror authors. Horror at, at the time of each of them, in their age poked at the taboos of their time because as much as horror repulsed, it titillated and it excited. I mean, think about what Mary Shelley's Frankenstein did. It not only just provided a story of a monster, but it tackled really taboo ideas of science, okay? And science versus God and man increasing his technology to possibly supplant God. This was absolute blasphemy to so many people. And in some cases, the book was not allowed to be read. It was banned. In addition to that, we have a man, Dr. Frankenstein, playing God. We have a monster that murders and kills and takes revenge against its creator. These are huge religious and social commentaries of their time, of its time. Uh, The same with Poe. Poe took, you know, the, the creepy and the weird and you know, the whole concept of marrying his younger cousin and he was a heavy drinker and some of his stories for their time, they were really fucked up. And then don't even start with Lovecraft who will come along 
and even take horror to an entirely different level beyond the weird and revenge and vampires and monsters, but take us into a whole new world. I mean, Lovecraft built his own world. So you have these stories that were not always there to creep you out, like, you know, the the hook on the door type of campfire story, but to seep into us and disturb us. You know, Bram Stoker's Dracula was a direct attack on sexual oppression. The vampire is a sexual instrument. And although vampires are dead below the waist, when the vampire, when Dracula bites his female victims, they are unwilling. Okay, it's not like any woman goes, oh yeah, I, I want to become you know the undead and have to live by night and suck the blood of human beings and then eventually one day turn to dust or get a stake through my heart. No, they are unwilling. Therefore, Dracula is a horror rapist. Really, that's what he is. He is forcing himself, bending the will of women to succumb to him and his sexual urges. Vampires fuck by feeding. That is their sex. So these were very, very uh, controversial topics at the time, which set the stage then for when film will come along and imagine trying to translate these complex stories into movies that would be accepted. Now, keep in mind, there were people who fainted in the original 1931 Frankenstein, who passed out at seeing Bela Lugosi as Dracula, both on stage and on screen. And Dracula was shot in a kind of, almost like a play. There are very few close-ups and inserts in Dracula. The concept then was to make a movie that kind of mimicked going to the theater. So if you watch the way that Todd Browning shot the original Dracula, you will see that there aren't a lot of interesting camera angles and that a lot of it is shot in a medium shot. Very few inserts and very few close-ups. So that wasn't heard of at the time. It'll be James Whale who's really going to step up the whole cinematography thing with his surreal backgrounds and his Dutch angles and his close-ups. And we'll, we'll get into all of that in a little bit as well. Horror allows us to deconstruct our worlds and then examine them. And in many ways, it allows us to appreciate the lives that we have as, as the genre shows these very mundane lives or things that we take for granted can be ended suddenly and terribly without the slightest warning. So before I go into the history of the genre and the virtues of horror and, and why we need it, I will argue horror is needed to keep us sane in the same way dreams are needed and nightmares are needed to keep our brains balanced. If we don't dream, we go insane. And I think I can apply the same thinking to horror. We can get into the whole roller coaster effect. Oh, you know, watching a horror movie is like a roller coaster. It's that thrill seeking in the safety of a theater home or even from a page. And that's all well and good. But I think there's more to it. All of that has been discussed over and over. And yeah, I get it. So let me stop here and ask, why are any of you so hell-bent on a mainstream Oscar or category for horror. So before we get into the horror, let's look at the Oscars themselves. You have to look at that. This award is the one that so many people want. Let's, let's find out what they are 
and why people want it. It seems like lately we have an award for everything to the point that do they really matter? I mean, whether it's in horror or movies or sports or school or we have an award for everything to the point that it just doesn't really mean much anymore. But Hollywood needed some kind of award. And back in 1929, the American Motion Picture of Arts and Sciences, they founded uh, in right around in 1927 to give like a legitimate mainstream status to to the industry. And it's going to be Louis B. Mayer, uh, the head of MGM. Uh, he's the guy, the movie mogul, because this was a time of moguls when when these almost like kings ran these studios. So he's the one who came up with the idea of the Academy Award. And listen to why he created it. Because basically, the award was nothing more than a carrot on a stick for filmmakers, especially writers. Mayer's purpose in creating the award was was to unite the five branches of the film industry, including, like I said, writers and actors, directors, producers, and technicians. And Louis Mayer commented on the creation of the awards, and I quote him here, I found that the best way to handle filmmakers was to hang medals all over them. If I got them cups and awards, they'd kill themselves to produce what I wanted. That's why the Academy Award was created. So think about that for a moment. We want our movies bestowed with an award that was basically created to be bait, a shiny bauble for a cat to strike at, or a carrot on a stick for a donkey to follow to get it what we want it to do. It's a carrot on a stick for underlings that the film execs thought would help motivate them. And I use that word lightly. Well, is this really any different than what Harvey Weinstein did during his reign and his snagging of of how many of these Oscar statues? I mean, he used the Oscars bait to lure, to seduce, to entrap. And that alone is a real life horror story. The Academy Awards over the last century have turned into a political bully pulpit with films not winning on merit, but rather the politics behind the scenes. Producers, actors, filmmakers, they they all solicit and campaign and even bribe Academy members who often vote the party line and only in the age of the internet give their honest opinions of the nominated films after their nominations have been cast. It's here where we find what a sham the ceremony really is and how each year it becomes more and more a back-padding, self-congratulatory spectacle of, of excess and tone deafness. The recent ceremony in post-2020, you know, the 2021 ceremony in post-pandemic world, or soon-to-be post-pandemic world, I mean, it showed just this. It also shows that while the mainstream fights to become even more homogenized, the fun of filmmaking has really been deflated. Going to the movies anymore just hasn't been all that much fun. And growing up in the 80s, another reason why I think people go back to the 80s and such is because there was this element of how they do it. And now we know how they do it. When it comes to special effects, really the best visual effects award just comes down to who had the better computer. I mean, back in the day, there were hand-painted mats and there were models and there were fake landscapes, huge fake landscapes. Look at the Death Star 
and how they shot those those huge attack scenes on the Death Star with these giant backlot sets. And I, I know what I sound like, the old guy shaking his fist at the clouds. I get it. But what I'm saying is there was a time when you went to the movies and you watched the movie with the special effects and you went, how the hell did they do it? Well, now we know. It's computers. Look, my podcast was founded on film being reduced to commercial product, good or bad. Bad movies have always been with us. And the word bad is subjective. The real danger is not bad filmmaking. But the real danger to modern filmmaking is the desire for studios to create foolproof algorithms to churn out moneymakers like off an assembly line. Just repackage the things that work and call it something else. And then you'll have an audience that just slowly doesn't even know any better any longer. And I have discussed this at length in my previous podcasts. We are seeing this with horror. And this will also be a topic of discussion in this limited series in a future episode. But back to the Oscars. The Oscars, as I said, have become a political platform for skewed politics and political correctness that translates into woke virtue signaling. We have celebrities who stand up there with their statues and wag their fingers at us and moralizing climate change while afterwards, you know, leaving the ceremony for the parties to jet around the world on private jets and their excess laden victory laps. I mean, seriously, Leo DiCaprio for the one Oscar ceremony a couple years ago, uh, didn't he fly in his eyebrow twiner from Australia? I mean, one guy on a private jet. And isn't this the guy that's, you know, telling us about climate change and carbon footprints and all of that stuff? What, you know, did did Leo fly coach with all his Victoria's Secret models and, and runway models around the world when he did his uh, his Oscar celebration? And aside, look, the environmental issues are easy targets. We had, How many went up and thanked Harvey Weinstein and got photos of themselves in his lap at his table, laughing with him, holding drinks, and even some calling him God in their acceptance speeches? And then after his fall, turn around and wear the black ribbons and quote the Me Too and Time's Up hashtags and lament his damage to women in the industry while they enabled that fucking monster for decades. And no one calls it out. Harvey Weinstein is Godzilla in a suit. He's a monster. And yet they loved him and they worshipped him until he got caught. And then he could no longer give those statues out. And why? All for this statue. I mean, some say we can thank Harvey for Gwyneth Paltrow, who, for me, inexplicably won Best Actress for Shakespeare in Love. And as we find out more as after Harvey's fall and as he heads to trial, uh, we find out that really he campaigned and spent tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars to get these Oscars. So what does that statue mean when somebody like Harvey Weinstein can use it to try to trap his sexual prey? Sounds like a horror movie to me, don't you think? Michael Moore took his Oscar for his slanted, disingenuous Bowling for Columbine best documentary, and he used it to lecture the world on the Iraq War. And I will offer that Michael Moore was a driving force behind George Bush's 2004 re-election. 
he just pissed off so many people with that rant. And just as his own documentary ignored the real victims of that Columbine tragedy and also skewed information to fit his agenda, even incurring the wrath of Trey Parker and Matt Stone as he tried to uh, follow his one animated history of the United States with animation that looked very much like South Park after, I believe, an interview uh, with Matt Stone. Um, I think that's really interesting. It was very disingenuous. Uh, the editing of that film on how he could walk into a bank and get a rifle and just make it out like he just walked in and got everything the same day. And I'm not going to get into the politics of all this. What I'm saying is, is that his acceptance speech could have been a plea for addressing the far deeper issues that plague us with these school shootings. And instead, he kept it simplified and stupid, just as his award-winning film did. There were no mention of the killers in Columbine in the way of, why didn't Michael Moore go interview their parents? And I can tell you why. Because number one, they probably turned it down. I would like to know that he tried. As far as I've read, I've never seen anything like that. I would hope, as an objective documentary filmmaker without a political axe to grind, and by the way, I am no Republican, and I am no Democrat. I am an independent. I would like to think that Michael Moore tried to go in an interview not just the parents of the killers, but also the school. We didn't see any of that. However, we did get Michael Moore trying to put Charlton Heston on the spot and make it look like he had blood on his hands for the death of a little girl who was shot in a classroom when a classmate brought a gun. So you went through all that effort to do a gotcha moment with Charlton Heston because he's high profile, of course, and the head of the NRA at the time. Um, guess it did, just wasn't as sexy is trying to get to some real issues there, such as the neighbors who live next door to one of the boys who saw them building pipe bombs and explosives in the garage and alerted the parents, and yet the parents told them to mind their own business. So why wasn't any of that examined? Why didn't Michael Moore examine the pharmaceutical industry? Why didn't he look at their psychiatric profiles? Again, I'm not sticking up just for guns, but what I'm saying is the answer is not a bumper sticker solution. And the horror was real. This is what you want horror to be honored with? These are the people you want horror to be respected by. Really. Let me let you in on a little secret. The reason why Hollywood refuses to honor horror with Oscars or accept it, even as a category for competition, is because the entire industry is run by monsters. That's the secret. The award shows just try to mask it, to normalize outlandish, hypocritical, and tone-deaf behaviors, and oftentimes very dark behaviors behind the scenes. We also have people who believe that the Oscars uh, have them themselves personally vested as if they own some kind of stock or piece or part of the movie that they have in the race. And I've given an example of this in my Pronouns of Fandom episode. Please go back and listen to that. It really underscores what I'm about to say here. But one afternoon, I called my mom and I asked how my dad was doing, my stepdad. And she said, well, he's not doing too well. He's in a bad mood. Uh, the New York Giants lost the game. And so I got him on the phone and I said, Dad, why are you all pissed off? He goes, I'm not pissed off. It's just my day is shot because my team lost. They're not your team. Did you have money wagered on the game? No. Do you own stock 
or to own a piece of the team? No. Has your financial standing been impacted in any way, shape, or form? Again, no. So what the fuck are you pissed off about? It's a football game, and they're not your giants. You like the team. But why do you like them? I mean, other than you just like them. My point is, there is no point in becoming so emotionally vested into something. Look, I love movies. I have a career in this industry. And yet, I can't tell you the last Oscar ceremony that I've sat through completely. I've caught pieces here and there. Uh, I love the Golden Globes when Ricky Gervais gets up there and kind of calls people out for what they really are. I love that part of it. I don't act like when a movie, like for example, even when I was a kid, if you know, a movie that I liked won an Oscar for something. I didn't go into school the next day and go, we did it. We won. You know, it's like when people say, we won today. Our team won today. No, you did nothing. You went and watched the game. You paid the ticket. You fulfilled your contractual obligation. But we does not work. You watched the game. They played it and they One, because it's their team, not yours. Trust me, go back and listen to my Pronouns of Fandom episode. Just what do you have to gain by a movie winning an Oscar? There is no we did it. They did it. They made the movie. You did not invest into it. In this age of pronouns, get them right, folks. If people are going to make a big deal now about gender pronouns and all of that stuff, then get these pronouns right as well. It was no different than when I was married. Uh, My ex-wife used to come to me and say, we really need to mow the lawn. Well, what she really means is, we translates to you. And one time I did because I was busy, said, well, you can go get the mower and you can mow the lawn. Is that we? But whenever we is used in that context, it really means me. People now love to post their social media full of their Oscar movie watch lists because it somehow makes you look more cultured or embracing the latest woke or virtue signaling momentum behind a film that tells the world how cultured and aware you are. Yes, on Facebook. I am watching all the movies nominated for the Oscar for Best Picture. I'm watching all of them because see how astute and how woke and how virtuous I am. You know what? A lot of these films don't deserve their nominations. A lot of them are there because they were politically manipulated behind the scenes. And many list these films never knowing their literary inspirations, let alone read those inspirations. Most have no idea how to critique a film. And perhaps the most damning, they think that this Oscar statue validates the hype behind the film and validates it as something good. Look, I'm not arguing that James Cameron is not a fantastic filmmaker. But what I am saying is, is that Titanic did not deserve Best Picture. It may have deserved best special effects and a number of technical achievements that it did. Uh, It's a long film, but really, (laughs) Titanic was nothing more than an overblown melodramatic soap opera. That's all it really was, with some big, expensive special effects. Did it deserve best picture? I'm going to say no. I do believe that Jaws qualified for at least the Best Picture nomination that it got. 
Did it deserve Best Picture? Well, in the in the year of 75, I'm going to say yes for all of its achievements, especially its technical achievements. And not just that, but it was the fact that the film got made and got made as great as it did. It overcame so much. So yeah, did it deserve it? Yes. Did it get it? No. So is this what you want for horror? Do you want a horror film selected based on its real merits, commercial appeal, and most of all, its quality? Or do you want it chosen to appease the latest mob mentality like Get Out? Yeah, I'm going to say it. Get Out is a fine film. There's nothing wrong with it. It's made well. I enjoyed Get Out. It was finally made and nowhere near a bad film. But come on, was it really Oscar worthy? If it didn't have its perceived racial undertones, would the nominations have been there? Or was it given Oscar love because people in the Academy felt white guilt, guilt, or just felt if we have to nominate a horror film, maybe it should be this one? Look, I've said it before and I'll say it again. Get Out is a great, fun, thriller, horror, and beautifully made. It's also pure formula, right down to the paint-by-numbers ending that I literally called in the last 15 minutes of the film. There's nothing groundbreaking. There's nothing worthy of a Best Picture or Screenplay nomination. There were plenty of horrors before and after, far more deserving of such distinction. But did they fit the Academy agenda? And that's another question for another time. As much of a non-fan I am of The Shining, why didn't it get a Best Picture nomination just on Kubrick alone and on Nicholson? It definitely deserved more Oscar love than it got, as it's finely produced, beautifully shot, and extremely well put together, and set a very high bar for horror films in production value. The crime of The Shining for me is that it is insufferably dull, it is overrated by horror fans, and treated much better by the nostalgia factor, and it is also a terrible translation of Stephen King's novel. But aside from that, where were the nominations at the least? I've said it before and I'll go into detail in later episodes. D. Wallace was screwed out of at least a nomination for Cujo. She just didn't act in that film. She went through boot camp for that role. She took a chance in her career after E.T. and broke the mold. We'll have more on this later. Look, The Dead Zone deserved a Best Picture nomination, and the same for its tortured Christopher Walken, who brought far more life to Johnny Smith than Stephen King gave him in his own novel. Cronenberg was robbed. But again, more on this later. What we don't realize is horror has been nominated, and it has won, and it's been accepted by the Academy at times. Silence of the Lambs, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and even Network, for me, they're horror films. They're social horror films. And I'll discuss that further as well, too. I've discussed that in previous episodes. Why do I say this? Because it is here where the industry allows us a glimpse of its own soul. All of these films focus on the corruption and evil that men and women do. They show how the actions of one can change the course for many. These films are about disruptors, and there are more. And I'm sure you can name a bunch of horror films right now that fit this idea. The Academy nominates and bestows their award upon these social horror films 
because the front picture is they look bold, brave, or against the grain. But Michael Medved, the famous film critic, had a meltdown over the Silence of the Lambs nabbing all the top Oscars back in the day. He felt it said something about our culture and what we value. Yet I notice he has been rather quiet on the real horrors after the Weinstein, Cosby, and other revelations. I mean, did he have a real problem with The Godfather winning Best Picture and all those awards or Godfather 2? I mean, the messages coming out of those films, I think they tell us a lot about where we are as a society as well. The Academy represents an agenda. It sometimes gives its awards to the films that are secret horrors because they give us a small inlet into the minds of the people who not just make these films, but the group who thinks they are worthy of the industry's highest award. The ceremonies have forgotten what they are celebrating aside from a vapid excess branding industry that showed a lot of its true colors at the start of this pandemic. Remember the the big stars saying we were all in this together as they made videos from their super yachts and mansions and horse races? Ellen DeGeneres called home confinement to her her multi-room mansion with a swimming pool and, and on an estate house arrest. Remember David Geffen sending a drone shot of his super yacht, telling people he he hopes everybody's staying safe, you know, while he's out there on, on his James Bond villain yacht. Horror goes often after hypocrisy. It shows what is under the mask. Think of how many horror plots that are based on exposing the rotten under the surface. What comes up from the depths, the ground, out of our dreams, our lusts, our transgressions. Now think about the people who control Hollywood being forced to look at this very thing, knowing that what really is horror is a mirror. Perhaps that is a reason why the genre is shunned, except for certain films. Or does it come down to just plain old snobbery? The Academy and the industry overall, they look down on their noses on this genre. It's the unloved stepchild, or as some bigger names have called it, porn's sibling. And that's funny, because while Hollywood loves to disparage porn and will blacklist movies and indie filmmakers using porn stars in their films, it's frowned upon if you want to be seen as legit, especially as an indie filmmaker. Now, if you're Tarantino and you want to, you know, put a porn star in your film, well, that's stylish and cool and trendy. Yet all of these Academy members and industry people, you know, they, they watch it. They watch porn and they have lived it in all of its incarnations. Hell, man, there is the famous story of one famous big studio executive who sat at an Oscar party at Schwarzenegger's house and got a blowjob from a girl in public sitting right there in the living room while people are walking around with their drinks and their hors d'oeuvres watching the Oscars. And this guy is sitting in a chair with a girl sucking him off and they frown upon porn. From Shirley Temple and the Little Rascals through Corey Feldman and Corey Haim, the horrors behind the cameras for children in the industry world would make a franchise series of films all on its own, a horror franchise. Art imitates life and maybe, just maybe, The horrors depicted are too much of a reflection for those who just not create in this industry, but don't wish to draw further attention to things that could serve as allegories to real-life situations. 
So let's get into this genre in the upcoming episodes. Let's see what it is, how it started, and look at the milestone films that not just marked it, but advanced it into the success it is today in a genre that I will argue that needs no mainstream acceptance and validation. I would be very curious for all the people that love the Friday the 13th franchises and Halloween and Hellraiser and Texas Chainsaw and Evil Dead and Candyman and Nightmare on Elm Street and all of those. I wonder how many of you really know your horror and know where all these things came from and what inspired them. Well, that's for future episodes to find out. Stay tuned for episode 95. And most of all, thank you for your time.